0: How do I introduce Oscar Cabello other than to say that he is a great Paraguayan? I could read you this multi-page list of academic achievements, professional experiences, international accreditations, academic publications, lectures, and so on and so on, but rather Oscar is the former ambassador for Paraguay to Austria, Slovakia, the Czech Republic, Hungary, Slovenia, Greece, Italy, Spain, Morocco, and to round out 10, Andorra. He was both the chairman and vice chairman for the UN Commission on Crime, and he's a current member of the International Tribunal for the Law of the Sea, and really that is just the tip of the iceberg. He's a judge, he's a lawyer, and um, I've linked in the description a website that does give his uh, precise credentials in full. Now, Oscar had actually never done a podcast before, and therefore, it was my immense honor that I got to be the first time, but the plan was actually to do a bit about Paraguay, and then a lot about his career and worldview when it comes to diplomacy, but we never quite got past Paraguay, such is his love for this country, and so we left it uh, at this stage. We've agreed to talk again in the future, this time in person, uh, because I think he would much prefer that. And there we can go top to bottom, his career, his worldview when it comes to diplomacy, some of his experiences and so forth. But I think this episode here will serve as a hitchhiker's guide, top to bottom Paraguay. It's history, it's culture, what it offers the world. And the great part is, is delivered by one of the country's great exports, Oscar himself. Now, to make sure we can keep attracting guests the calibre of Oscar Cabello. Please consider leaving a five-star review on the very phone and the very app which you are listening to these words being spoken. Pause the episode, now go into the show and leave five stars. It really moves in the needle more than anything else for podcasts. And now, with absolutely no further ado, here is the wonderful and extremely erudite Oscar Cabello. Welcome to the podcast, sir. It is a complete honor and thrill. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Raya. For me, it is also a pleasure to to have this conversation <laughs> with you.
0: And um, am I correct in uh, in assuming that this is your first time?
1: In in a podcast, yes. I have been <laughs> participating in in Zooms, you know, and all these kind of uh, meetings, uh, but never in a podcast. Yeah. So in uh, terms
0: of putting the story out into the world and uh, airing some of your opinions.
1: Exactly. Well, this is uh, exciting really.
0: <laughs> I think it makes sense to start a little bit with your childhood which um obviously involves your father who was the ambassador to Paraguay. Sorry, the Paraguayan ambassador to the Vatican. So exactly. a lot of yes, your childhood right. was actually in the Vatican. Could you please reflect on these years?
1: Well, those, those was really uh, for me was uh, very special years. Really, I think that it changed my life totally, completely. You know, because before going to Rome, that was in the well, in the in the sixties, nineteen sixties. Imagine it, it's so so many years ago. Uh, I never have left Paraguay practically, never in my life. So one day, my father comes to to our home and tells my mother and and the kids, we were six of them, that we were going to Rome, that he was being designated uh, ambassador to the Holy See. There was a reason for that, Uh, at that time uh, we have, let's say, an authoritarian government and this government was having problems with the church. The church was starting to, uh, let's say, criticize the, the government. There were some outspoken priests, you know. And and then uh, the government started to look for a, a good Catholic. My father was a, a leader of the Catholic, uh, let's say, community in, in Asuncion he was even the president of the catholic youth when he was much younger of course in the 30s and early 40s and but at the same time he was also working for the government he was a lawyer and he had some position he was in, in the in the ministry of finance for a while he was also in a bank in, a, in an official bank for a few years so he has some experience also in as a public servant. So here's the two important aspects for the governor at that moment you know so they they invited him to to become ambassador to the Holy See. My father was not a career diplomat. He has never in, in his life been in any kind of diplomatic mission. So it was the first time for for him but he was very excited because at that time also, maybe you should link with the fact the 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 Vatican council was taking place uh, i'm talking about early 60s mid 60s uh, the pope uh, john 23rd had decided to have this ca- to call this council after maybe i think the the previous council was in the previous century Imagine it was something like eight years be, uh, uh, after uh, the the first Vatican Council. This was to be the the first, but the second Vatican Council. And it was 80 years later the the John John 23 decided to to have this this council. So it was a, also for for my father it was very exciting because. He was going to, in a way, to be an spectator on in the first rows of a very important change change that could take place in in the church. So as a as a Catholic, an Catholic, also for him, this was very very interesting. So uh, we went to Rome. I at that time I was the the oldest of my of my of all the children. We, we were three three boys and three girls I was the oldest of them all and at that time I was 16 years old so for me so was uh, quite an experience so we went to Rome and we stayed there for for six years and uh, during those years I, I finished my secondary school I went to a, a Spanish school in Rome because uh, Italian to me was was a, a bit difficult at the beginning, so my father decided that it was better for all us, for, for all of us, to go to to the Spanish school in in Rome. There was one, a, a religious one, and uh, and then uh, we went there, and of course they they were also teaching us Italian there. So we, I improved my Italian very fast during those years. I was only two years in that school, but it was enough for me. And after that, uh, uh, I, when I finished my secondary school, I I went to the university in Rome. So uh, I studied at the La Sapienza, they call it, the University of Rome. Um, and I went to the School of Law there. It was not my initial decision, but my father... Um, Make made me reason that I I actually wanted to study uh, polit political science. And he say no, it, it will be a mistake because when you go back to Paraguay as a as a science pol- politician, probably <laughs> you won't be able to to find a job and how are you going to survive? you know? <laughs> So you better study law first, and then, then if you want and if you have time, you do political science or whatever you want. So I accepted his his advice, and I went to to the school of law, and I I studied there for four years. I graduated. I t- I took my my first degree, a university degree there, after four years and then i i i went to to continue my studies to the catholic university in milano in the nor- northern italy and uh, i and i stayed 2 years there in milano and i took like a a diploma they call uh, it was like a master degree you know in international law because i i was at that time i was very interested in in international law more than any other uh, sector, let's say, of the of the law, that was the, my my preference, and also it was an important time because during those years I met a, a good friend of my father, uh, who became later vice minister of foreign affairs and and even minister of foreign affairs. And I remember that the year I graduated, there was. Uh, Uh, I was at that time 23 years old or something like that and he came to Rome just on a visit because at that time he was an ambassador in Spain and he he said to me okay you know Rome better than anybody you know Uh, please take me around I want to visit the city show me all the monuments you know all the historical places at the time I was an expert because after living uh, seven years in Rome uh, I knew all the places you know and I also I love reading history even now so uh, I knew a lot of of the history of every monument what happened in every place there in Rome in the different places so this guy was impressed by me and then when, when he went back to Paraguay and at the end of my studies i wrote to my father and say okay i finished my study. i have to go back to paraguay because my father was already back you know my 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 father finished his mission by i continued studying in when i was in milano for, for a for a, a few a few times more and so i wrote to my father and say okay i have to go back but i don't know what i'm going to do in paraguay so if you look for some places in a lawyer studio you know if i can go to work with some lawyers there and then he brought me no no i I spoke with my friend the the one that you took for a visit in rome and he said he expecting you at that time we didn't have let's say like entrance examinations, you know to go (laughs) into the civil service or whatever you know it was an authoritarian government, so everything was doing, we say, with the finger, you know. We, we will show someone and say, okay, you come here, you go there. I, I, exactly. So, that was the only way. Now, f- luckily, things have changed and we have uh, this examination for, for the diplomatic service and things like that. But at that time, it wasn't like that. And so I, I canceled everything I had in Europe. I, I took the first plane I could and I went back to, to Paraguay. And so I started to work for the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. I, I was at that time very interested in the diplomatic job, of course. Uh, I, 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 I During my years at the university, I, I was taking extra extra studies in international relations everything that i could i i could have some time to to follow you know so not only i studied law but i also i tried to study things in in the realm of uh, international relation diplomacy and things like that so in, in a sense i was better prepared than most of, m- most of my colleagues at that time and So I went back to Asunción, and that was the way how I I started to work for the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. And I stayed there for 45 years, Mm -hmm. 45 years of my
0: life in that ministry. Well, thank you for that, Oscar. That's a really nice overview from how you got into the career of a diplomat. But uh, to return to the Vatican, the Vatican is a mysterious, rather secretive country that is in the middle of the capital of italy rome there is a lot of intrigue um yet your father was the paraguayan ambassador to this rather small country so um a little bit about the experience of growing up not growing up coming into adulthood in the vatican
1: yeah well actually i i want to clarify one thing i i wasn't living at the vatican of course if you can imagine you know it's such a small place all the diplomats were living actually in Rome, in the city of Rome. And uh, we have, of course, uh, a preferential access to the Vatican City. I remember my mother going there. To, uh, there was like a big, su- a kind of supermarket you know, uh, with special prices and, you know, very more, more advantageous prices than in the city of Rome. So we used to go there and buy things and and things like that. But at that time also, uh, I used to accompany my father to the ceremonies that were taking place in in the Vatican. Uh, It was a very small embassy. I I remember my father had had only one person working for him. There was a, a second Paraguayan guy working for him so in a way, uh, being the oldest of the of the children, my my father used to tell me, "Okay, you come with me also. You help me." So I, I used to go with him to these, uh, especially the during the the final session. You know, at the end of every session of the Vatican Council, there used to be like a presentation of the let's say of the reports. You know every commission because there were different commissions were presented reports to the Pope and this was like a big ceremony within the St. Peter's Basilica and I used to go with 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 my father and sit there for hours and hours uh, listening if these reports being presented to the Pope and also the Pope was giving like instructions like line of uh, of uh, discussion, establishing, you know, these are the priority, you should uh, concentrate on this or that or whatever, you know. And the funny thing, they, they were most of the time they were speaking in Latin. So I, I improved my Latin a lot at that time, you know. Uh, because I, I used to study also during my secondary st- uh, school uh, I, I took humanities at the, at the school. so uh, I, I was in a way forced to study four years of Latin during my secondary education. So I, I was a, also, I have a good basis you know for that. So uh, at that time I was almost fluent in, in Latin. Now of course uh, it's very difficult for me to to say a few words. So in that sense, it, it was a, a really a very interesting experience, you know, and uh, to listen to these archbishops, uh, bishops, you know, all the big intellectuals of the of the Catholic Church, you know, discussing important issues, you know, and uh, it was re- very enrichment, enriching really for me. I I, I learned a lot uh, during during those years, really. Going with my father, even if for for an external, you know, visitor, uh, they could say this is a very boring place. You know, what, what are you doing there? You know, a young guy going to a boring, you know, meeting and things like that. But on the contrary, for me, it was really very, very interesting. So my years in 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 Italy really gave a new direction to my life. You know. In, and Did you ever meet the Pope? Uh, yes, uh, I I met him uh, three or four times directly because uh, it, it, there was a tradition that when you come uh, uh, at the beginning of the mission, when a, a new ambassador comes, he should invite his family as, at a certain point. Not necessarily the first meeting with the Pope, you know, but at a certain moment, uh, the whole family will be invited to to go with the ambassador with the the head of mission and head of the family at the same time go to visit the pope uh, and have a, a like like a a very confidential meeting with him uh, a close doors let's say with the pope and my father presented every member of the family and having a a short, a short meeting, of course, it didn't last. I, I I remember our first uh, meeting with the Pope was only twenty minutes, maybe something like that. You know, but then we were we used to be invited also to like private ceremonies of the Pope. You know, and some families were invited, for example, for Christmas or in Eastern time. You know, there were like. Uh, first communion for example my my two of my sister of the three sisters the two oldest of my three sisters they took the first communion from the hand of the pope i remember in the 16th chapel you know (laughs) oh that's have you ever been in, in in rome i don't know but they they took the communion from from the pope so so we have some chances to be with the pope and also at the end when my father was ending his his mission also the same thing the, the whole family uh, was received by the pope like as a farewell meeting you know uh, just to say goodbye to the pope and then uh, uh, it was also a very short meeting no of course yeah so, I have three or four direct uh, contact, let's say, with, with, with the Pope uh, during those years. Yeah.
0: With El Papi?
1: With, with our Papi.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's course, incredible, uh, um, especially yeah. taking communion in the Sistine Chapel. Did you get many other sort of exclusive time in the Vatican Museum or in the Sistine well, Chapel I, itself? What can I say? Away from well, the... Not, well, you know, this was probably the, the most uh, uh,
1: spectacular moment for 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 my family, really. But of course, we we used to go every every Easter to to the the Easter mass uh, just when the resurrection of Christ is declared. You know, this is a very uh, emotional moment. You know, if you believe, of course, you yeah, have to be a believer. You know. Uh, if you go there uh, it was a long mass on on i it used to be on on saturdays yes on saturday we should we used to start like 6 p.m in the in the evening till almost midnight and then at midnight uh, there was the proclamation of the resurrection that christ has resurrected you know and it was a very em- emotional moment, really, because, you know, imagine the the, the basilica of St. Peter, you know, full of people with all the cardinals, all the diplomatic corps being present there. And suddenly, uh, when, when someone say Christ has resurrected, and then they used to have uh, a lot of uh, doves, in, in, uh, in cages and they will let these uh, doves free suddenly and they will fly inside the St Peter's Basilica you know uh, it, it just giving you the impression really that something was coming to life again you know that we were all resurrecting in a way you know because of these little birds, you know, just flying all around us, you know, there were dozen and dozen of these doves being released at that moment, you know, when when they proclaimed the resurrection of Christ, you know. So this this was also something that I will never forget. You know, this is this was really amazing experience, really.
0: Yeah, it sounds absolutely incredible um you know even if you're not a necessarily religious person have you maintained your religion through till today
1: yeah well i i i'm still uh, let's say half a pract- practitioner you know of 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 my religion with time you know uh, you change also the church has changed a lot you know the church has changed a lot and we are also changing and of course, uh, I have an absolutely respect for everybody, anybody. You know, they 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 can believe whatever they want. Even in my family, I never force my my daughters or anybody you know that surrounds me to believe in this or or that. You know, even if my father did the same, my father never press pressure on me to to be a believer. But I don't know. I I still believe. I believe, you know, I I have a, 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 I could I couldn't say they are they are a model of believer, you know. <laughs> they are better pe- person than me on on that, you know. But uh, I I still think that there is a God and uh, and uh, we should uh, have the hope that there is another life, you know. Even if your brain, you know, your when you think it's very difficult sometimes to. Of course, you, you cannot have uh, reasons, you cannot find absolute reasons to sustain that kind of belief, but that is a belief, you know. A belief means uh, you have to confide, you know, you have to give yourself to something. There is no other way. If you st- start thinking and thinking, you won't find the, the solution. Yeah. You will find you never have to a solution for that,
0: Yeah. You have to accept that it is not uh, solvable via rational mind. I mean, that's the whole leap of exactly. faith, yeah. part of the, yeah. of the religion. So, Oscar, I think um, yes. in preparation for this, something that sort of stood out to me was that the role of a diplomat is obviously as a representation of a country in another country. And your direct mission is to either... Increase trade relations between the two nations. Maintain political diplomatic relations. Um, they're the kind of peak goals, but at the bottom of that is you have to be able to sell Paraguay. You got to be able to go to walk into any country and say, "This is why you should be partnered with Paraguay." So I'd love to hear you pitch Paraguay. Mm-hmm.
1: Yes, well, exactly. You are in very. Uh, simple and understandable words. You know, you are saying what we diplomats are supposed to do. Exactly, we 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 are uh, uh, human uh, expert in in human relations. We should be expert in, in human relations. You know, we should be open to to any kind of people. Uh, it should be a a man open to different ideas, different traditions, uh, be able to 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 live with them, you know. In in order to gain their confidence, also because this is the only way you you will convince someone, you know. In, in if you if you are really close to that people, then they will believe in you, and you can. Uh, give them, you know, some ideas that could help uh, in increase the relation in between the two countries. You know, so the the I I was ambassador three times, but I, I also served in in your in our mission to the United Nations for many years, and that was also a big school for me. The the United Nations in New York is is really the 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 top of all the international organizations really. You are at, at the top of them, you know, all of them. So and it's also a, a a place where you gather information from all the different sources in the international community. So you have all the versions, you know, all the different versions it's not the same reading the paper or watching television, watching the news, you know. You are there uh, talking with the actors, you know, or, or listening to the actors. So, really, my experience in the United Nations was, was very great, really. I was for a few years there. Uh, and uh, But after that, uh, I, of course, I, as a diplomat, you are supposed to to serve abroad and to serve in, in the ministry in the country also. So we are rotating, we call it rotation. You go out and you come in again. So uh, I, during my career I, I I can say almost half and half. I was half the time out abroad and half the time in the ministry. And. Uh, but the the experience in a sense is the same is or is similar because even if you are in the ministry you are contacting all the time with the representative of the foreign nations so with diplomats they are serving in your country but you still maintain that contact with foreign people you know uh, is is the the other coin of the the other side of the coin is when you are yourself Outside, uh, abroad, uh, doing that kind of job, you know, and of course by for a, it depends on what are the the national interests of of your country, what what the accent where the accent should be put, you know, for example, uh, in in a case of developing country like like, like my country, Paraguay. Uh, Paraguay especially when I, I started my my career Paraguay was a very very poor country. We are now in in the in a middle position let's say we are a lot what they call now emerging countries uh, and at that time we were really poor so uh, for us it was very important to attract investment to 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 as you say to create conditions for for trade. For export of our goods, and also to attract cooperation, international cooperation, we needed assistance, you know, and and we need, need a new know-how from different sources. So uh, these were was the the main uh, topics of our work, you know. So uh, cooperation, uh, investments, trade, based, uh, trade uh, relations and uh, and of course also try to show the best part of of your country the best you know like like anybody's doing that you know even every any any human will try and always to show to others what is the best part of of yourself you know we we try to do that you know i think this is uh, automatic You, you don't have to think twice to do it you know so uh, a country also has to show, you know, to the other nations, what is the best o- of you. So, in that sense, we uh, what we call uh, cultural diplomacy is also very important, or soft diplomacy is very important, you know. And so we were also working on on that, you know, like organizing. Uh, Concert from just to show the Paraguayan music, or gastronomic gatherings showing what what in Paraguay we we eat, you know, what is the best culinary, you know, what is the best of the culinary Paraguayan art, and things like that, you know. So the, it's incredible how many facets, aspects you can find in in a diplomatic work, you know. And if you are lucky, you will have also the the right people to help you on that, you know, because normally uh, if you come from a a smaller country or less uh, developed or rich country, uh, you will need uh, to find local people sometimes that will help you. And on that, uh, we were very lucky. I I was very lucky because in all the countries I, I was, I was in Italy, I was in in austria i was in spain and i i always find people there uh, interested in in my country and wanting to to give their hands you know to promote paraguay to to some of them have some connections of course you know uh, like people that marry a paraguayan or or a, a Paraguayan that marry a, an Austrian girl or a Spanish girl or whatever, and, and things like that. So what I was trying is to create like, like clubs, associations, you know, or of people from both countries, the local people and and the Paraguayans that, that were living there, they were residents there. Organize them. So they can become also uh, a part in this process of uh, promoting promoting the Paraguay uh, in, in with, within within the the country where I was serving. Yeah, you know. uh, especially in Spain, I I was very uh, very able to to do a lot of things because there there was such. And there is still such a large Paraguayan community. We have more than 100,000 Paraguayans living in Spain now. At that time, where, when I was there as, as wow. an ambassador, they were even more. They were like 150,000. Know? So uh, I tried to organize the, the different Paraguayan communities all around Spain. They were living in, especially in the south and... And east of Spain, you know, and in like Val- Valencia and Catalonia, those areas there was there was a large concentration of Paraguayans, and also in the extreme north, uh, like the Basque regions and Galicia, there were also large communities. So I visited all these communities, and I tried to let them organize themselves. You know, I I. I I promote the the creation of Paraguayan associations, cultural associations and things like that and that helped helped a lot really help a lot and also the the local people let's say the Spaniard in this case or the Austrian when I was in Austria they were also interested in in helping the the Paraguayan community to to be better known in, in their their society let's say. And this helps also f- uh, for for a country to to give a, a different view of what they are. No? Because it's... It- but
0: Oscar, Oscar.
1: Yes, yes, tell me.
0: Oscar, you've, you've come across um, me and my audience as well, a bunch of people interested in Paraguay. So te- introduce us to this country. Tell us um, what we need to know about it beyond that it's... Like a five million population landlocked country, soybean is the biggest export. Like really get into the nuts and bolts. Introduce us to this country.
1: Oh, well, I cannot do that. Well, I'll try to do it in a few words. Uh, well, Paraguay, as you say, is a, is a small in population, really. We are we are not we are saying now that we are seven million, but we are still discussing the result of the last census. And anyway, we are around seven million people. But we have a country the size of Germany plus the Netherlands plus Belgium together. Is 400 more than 400 uh, 400 thousand square kilometers. So, it's not a big country, but if you look at the map, uh, it's not a small country, it's not a big country. If you look at the map of South America, we are, you know, in the middle of the two largest states, you know, Brazil and Argentina. So, the impression you got, oh, this is a very small country, you know, poor Paraguayans, you know. We are there in, in the middle of these two big, big countries, you know. But uh, we are not that small, really. It's a it's a it's a mostly flat country. The, we don't have big mountains. We have a lot of forests. It's a very green, on especially Paraguay is divided into two main regions. You know, there is a river that gives the name to the country, the Paraguay the Paraguay River, that starts in in the in Brazil. In the Mato Grosso area of Brazil, and it comes down almost straight south from there to the Rio de, to uh, to Argentina to to meet the Paraná River, which is the second largest river in South America, after the Amazon. The Paraná River is the second largest river. is it, is also a, a, a mighty river. It has a lot of water. Uh, in quantity of water is bigger than m- most other river with the exception of of the of the amazon the amazon river i think this is the second in, in volume of water is the second largest river in the world not in length there are l- l- longest rivers of course but uh, this is really mighty and the paraguay river ends in uh, in the in the Paraná River just in the border with uh, Argentina when where Argentina meets Paraguay there so uh, this, we have this big river and this is the also the the main road the Paraguay has to communicate with the world you know uh, for centuries in colonial times we had ships coming out of Asunción through the Paraguay River and going to Europe or the North North America or to North America you know and that last uh, maybe three and a half centuries till in the last years in the last three four decades we discovered uh, it was cheaper for us to use barges so we have now in Paraguay the third largest fleet of barges in the world after China and the United States It's the third largest uh, fleet of barges. And uh, we communicate through uh, the ports Uruguayan, Brazilian and Argentinian ports. Uh, These barges reach the, the ports in Argentina, Uruguay, at the Rio de la Plata, and they transfer the, their goods, their cargo into larger ships, oceanic ships, and, and they go to any kind of destinations in the world. So we don't have ships that go directly as before. We used to have ships going to to ports in Northern Europe. You know, even here in Hamburg, we used to receive in Hamburg uh, ships from Paraguay. That was in the in the late 60s, 70s, in the 70s, 80s of the last century. But then we decided it was much more economically convenient just to have barges. And our population, the Paraguayans, we Paraguayans, we are uh, the result of a big melting pot. When when you use the expression melting pot, we normally refer to the United States, but it's not true. I think in all nations in, in 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 the Americas, not only in North America, we are melting pots. You know, we we have uh, different origins. You know, in, in my personal case, like in the case of many Paraguayans. There is this this mixture of Italian and Spanish origins, you know, mix with local uh, native population, you know. So in, in my case, I'm sure that maybe six, seven, eight generations before me, there was probably a native, you know, also. <laughs> And and who knows maybe uh, color people black people also because uh, the Spaniard also introduced slavery into Paraguay in the uh, eight, eight say seventeen no eight eighteenth century in the eighteenth century there there were some slaves coming to Paraguay um, from Africa so we we have all these mi- mixtures you know yes.
0: Yeah, I was just gonna. You want to say something? Point of slavery, isn't it also the case that Brazil, which is a, a bordering country to Paraguay, they actually received more slaves than America ever did?
1: No, no, of course not. Uh, Paraguay received very, very few of them. Uh, most of the slave came to to Brazil, exactly. Yeah, and some of them escaped to Paraguay because treatment was better. They they say. I, I cannot uh, prove that, but they say the the treatment was much better in Paraguay. So some slaves escaped from Brazil and came to Paraguay, but were considered slave all the all the same, you know, the, by the colonial powers. You know, but uh, they were treated better, you know, in Paraguay. So th- that that they say. Anyway, we we have a very small por- portion of our population. The can say that they come from 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 those uh, slaves that came to Paraguay. Maybe three, four percent, five percent of our population. Most of our population is a mixture of natives. You know, uh, the Guaranis, because the the native population, the autochthonous population in Paraguay, were the Guaranis. Uh, there was a group of of Indians. We say, of course, they they don't we we don't live in the in india they didn't come from india but uh, we still com- call the indian population yeah. and then they uh, they mix with the spanish population so maybe 50% half of our population is a mix of of these two big groups like say european and and indian uh, origin you know we are a mix of them and the, the, the natives that decided to stay, stay in, in their tradition and live like they used to live before colonial times are very few, really. They, they are maybe out of seven million, something like 150,000 people, which is, maybe, I don't know, maybe one, one and a half percent or something like that. Or a bit more, 2% two, two of our population are uh, considered that but we have a terrible war uh, in the at the end of the 19th century we have a war with our neighbors it was the the worst war ever fought in 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 Latin America uh and it was very very deadly war we, the triple alliance war okay where something like uh, two-thirds of the paraguayan population disappeared they were not killed in 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 battle not all of them of course but of course there was a lack of food uh, a lack of sanitary conditions so a a lot of people die of different diseases and at the end uh, Paraguay was reduced to to a, a bunch of people let's say
0: in what period of time did you lose two-thirds of the population?
1: Two-thirds of the, our population died during the war. In uh, what period of uh, time? Our,
0: how many years?
1: In in about how, uh, five and a half... Well, from 64 till 70. So it was five and a half years more or less of war. 1864
0: and or 1964? 1864.
1: 18, 1864 till 1870. At the beginning of 1870, we were finally defeated and the country was occupied for for a period of like six years by Brazilian and Argentinian troops. We were also in war with Uruguay, but the Uruguayan uh, Uh, military withdrew in the middle of the war you know they decided not to fight more against Paraguay so by 1866 the end of 66 uh, beginning of 77 there were no Uruguayan forces anymore fighting against Paraguay but at the beginning yes they, they were also part of the of the of the war you know the army against us so, uh, what happened at the end of the century, of the 19th century? I, I'm referring to that century. Uh, that we received a lot of immigrants. Uh, really, uh, well, not the. We cannot use the figures that were the the Americans can use, or the Argentinians also. Argentina received millions of immigrants, and the United States received. Uh, uh, millions and ten of millions of, of immigrants during a period of fifty, sixty years, let's say. In the case of Paraguay, we received ten of thousands, you know, every year. We are we were receiving a few, a few thousand, or, or maybe some more than ten thousand immigrants. But for the small population in Paraguay that we have at that time, probably we were less than. Two hundred thousand people in the whole country. By the beginning of the twentieth century, in in, in nineteen hundred, we were maybe two hundred thousand people only. So receiving these ten of ta- ten thousand or twenty thousand immigrants every year was for us a lot of people. And I mean, that's this why is from uh, Italy and uh, Spain, our, and most mostly from Italy, mostly from Italy, more than Spain. We receive people from Italy. That's why I, I remember I have a conversation uh, a year or two years ago with the Italian ambassador in Paraguay, and he said to me that for him was an extraordinary discovery that Paraguay was the the country where probably we have the largest percentage of people from Italian origin, of all the countries in South America, even more than Argentina, even more than Uruguay. Or Venezuela, you know, they are considered like the Italian countries, you know, in in our part of the world, because they discovered that almost 30 percent or 40 percent of our population, between 30 and 40 percent, have some kind of Italian blood in in their in between in among their ancestors, you know, uh, ne- not necessarily the, the being the son of an Italian. But maybe the grandson
0: or the grand grandson of an Italian, you know. So the Italians were coming before World War Two as well to Latin America.
1: Yeah, they they came in two in two periods, mostly in two periods. One was at the end of the nineteenth century, let's say from eighteen eighty, from the 1880s till the beginning of the nineteen hundreds. And then after the First World War, after the First World War also we we receive a, a lot of Italians. And after the Second World War, very little really. Uh, this is uh, sometimes they, they they try to to present you know South America like the refuge of all the the criminals you know escaping from from Europe after the Second World War Nazis and things like that you know. I'm not denying that they came to us, of course, they, they came, but th- their numbers were, were was very small, really. There were very few of them going to Chile, going to Argentina, Paraguay, Brazil, Bolivia, especially. Those were the the countries where they, they were coming. Especially because we have also a uh, like German uh, population living there, you know. For them was easier to hide in these countries than in the countries more to the north of South America. Uh, That's why they prefer to come to Argentina, especially in the south of Argentina, as you know, there are large communities or people from from German uh, ascendancy. And the same thing in, in Brazil, in the south of Brazil, you know, in the state of Santa Catalina and Rio Grande do Sul, you have a large, a large, uh, a large uh, percentage of people from German origin, and in, in the case of Paraguay, that is also true in the, in our south, in in the southern uh, provinces of Paraguay. We we don't use the the expression province. We 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 call like the French departments, departamentos, departments, you know? and uh, especially in in Itapua and Alto Parana, uh, we have a lot of people from Brazil, uh, from German origin. But when I say German origin, they are not uh, the the children of Germans. Absolutely, they are four, five, six generations. You know, they they their ancestor came to Brazil or to to Arge- They moved from Brazil or from Argentina to Paraguay maybe a century ago or something like that you know so the they came very very early in time let's say to to our region
0: oscar it feels like you yeah. kind of um breezed over the triple alliance war uh could you say a little bit more about that and just how truly devastating it was to paraguay and then how the echoes of that conflict maybe, are still reflected in modern-day Paraguay? Why it happened, who was involved, these sort of details.
1: Yeah, well, uh, it's, it's difficult for us, really, to explain that war, you know, because it's so such an a irrational war, it was a totally irrational war, you know. Uh, there there are, maybe, uh, some explanation that can be given on the point of view of the ideology you know you know that in the 19th century the the leading ideology in the world was liberalism liberalism and and uh, like uh, you know in like the last century was dominated by by Marxism in a way you know the the fact that uh, Marxism tried to impose as an ideology all around the world you know and well, in, during the 19th century, that was. And uh, in France, the the first place where uh, liberalism, you know, started to 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 control, you know, the, a nation, uh, it moves to to other countries, you know, to different countries. Uh, the influence of the liberalism was very strong in, in in Latin America. It influenced a lot the ideology the way of thinking of our leader of the independence movement you know so the the patriots as we say the all our patriots were liberal in a way you know they they were thinking about the equality um uh, to be the freedom you know the idea of absolute freedom and and that was the what move you know the this uh, independent uh, process in 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 south america especially in south america so uh, what happened in paraguay was that even if we were a republic because we were, we were we proclaimed ourselves as a republic uh, at the beginning of the 19th century paraguay was one of the first countries in the world actually to declare himself a republic you know and and we are considered one of the oldest republics in the world i think san marino in, in, in italy in northern italy which is an independent country, they say themselves. We are the oldest rep- continuous republic in, in the world. Exactly, I, I'm not denying that. But uh, we we have been a republic for more than two centuries. To now, our, I think we are now with uh, around uh, arriving to 220, almost 220 years that we are independent. So uh, and that we are a republic because we proclaim ourselves as a republic just from the beginning because our leaders at that time they were a strong believer of the liberal ideas you know and and they were also admirer of the Roman republic you know? I remember that our first president of the republic uh, he was a dictator and he used the name "dictator" from the Roman tradition. In that sense, not in the modern sense of a dictator. You know, a dictator in, in Roman time was when a country was in a situation of of a, a big danger. You know, there, there was a possibility of an invasion or of a war against the country. The the Roma used to elect one citizen with and give him all the powers in order to effectively defend the nation against this uh, challenge this uh, danger or whatever that was menacing the the country but in that case we were in the middle of a a big anarchy you know all surrounding paraguay at the beginning of the 19th century there there was this war of independence in paraguay we didn't have a war we, we didn't have to kill anybody for the Spanish to give us uh, our freedom. Because there was a very a small number of Spanish uh, soldiers uh, stationed in Paraguay. Most of the soldiers were actually Paraguayans, so uh, native, native Paraguayans that were serving in the, in the Spanish army. So. It was like a coup d'état, really, what we we did in Paraguay. A group of officers from Paraguayan origin decided to depose the Spanish-born uh, officer You know, higher ranking, of course, to be a higher-ranking officer at that time in colonial time, you had to be a Spaniard. You had to show that you were a pure Spaniard. Otherwise, you cannot be a general or whatever. You know, or the chief of the army. But all the lower level officers were Paraguayans, you know, born people that were born in, in the Paraguayan territory, even if maybe their parents were Spanish or, or whatever. And they were all uh, convinced of this ideology, the the liberal ideology. What happened is that after, uh, with time going, you know, we have a strong governments in Paraguay but even if they proclaimed themselves to be Republicans, they were still uh, using what uh, I don't know if you ever heard about Tocqueville. Tocqueville was a polit- political scientist, a French political uh, writer in the in the 19th century. Uh, he wrote a, a very important book about the Ancien Regime. The the I don't know how to translate it into English. It's not necessarily old regime, but the old style regime. Let's say the old style regime. So uh, there were people in Europe. They were the, a minority. They were nostalgic of the uh, the royal system, the absolutist system. You know, that was uh, being uh, deposed or destroyed by the french revolution so in paraguay even if we proclaim ourselves that we were republicans all the economy the economic system social system was in a way in a way a kind of ancien regime was what, some politician uh, uh, expert in politics say a uh, patrimonialist system patrimonialist state so the state was the owner of everything. And if you, if you were the, at the head of the state, it's like you were the owner of everything. So our uh, first presidents, they, they were like, like, like kings. Even if they were Republican, if they were president of the Republic, uh, they were all the time in power. They were never deposed. You know? they, they continue for years and years in power and and they even were inherited by their their sons that that happened in paraguay you know that there was a president and then the son was the the next president and thing like that so for real liberals like in the rio del plata in buenos aires or in in rio de janeiro you know or in europe they cannot accept this kind of people so one of the results of the triple alliance was like a crusade, you know, a crusade organized uh, against the Paraguayan government because they were so obsolete, in, in a sense, you know, ideologically speaking, obsolete. They represented a, a regime that has, has or was been disappearing from all around the world, you know, being substituted for more... Uh, modern, we can say modern, uh, uh, modern states. You know, so this was one of the big reasons. There was a coalition of liberals. You know, declaring the war to Paraguay. Also, you know, in a sense, this was the ideological set setting. You know, of this war. There were also more practical things. You know, uh, the the fact is that the, the Brazilian proclaimed themselves like an empire, you know, the, the king, the king of Brazil proclaimed himself emperor, emperor of Brazil at that time, and they wanted to unify Brazil, because Brazil was a, a big country, well, it still is a big country, the, with different uh, traditions, you know, in the north, in the center, in the south, and even the composition of the population ethnically speaking was was and is still different so they try to expand themselves you know they were expanding and actually the the they say the the fact they started the the war against paraguay was that the Brazilian were invading Uruguay, and but the Paraguayan government at that time had signed an agreement, an alliance, a, a, a mutually defense agreement with Uruguay. So the the government of Uruguay, when they saw this Brazilian army coming into their territory, asked for help to the Paraguayan government. And the president at that time decided to send an army uh, to Uruguay to, to help the Uruguayans against the Brazilians. Uh, of course, if you look now with your modern eyes, you know, these uh, this facts, you say, okay, these Paraguayans were crazy, you know. How can the Paraguayans in the middle of the continent, you know, with a relatively small population, how can they send an army to to help uh, another country against a big empire like Brazil? you know? But that was not the the whole thing the whole th- th- the things were even more complicated because at that time there was a change of government in in Argentina just to make it easier, you know. And this new government was a liberal government, proclaimed as a liberal. And the, the president of Argentina at that time was a convinced and an ideologically active man for liberalism. He wrote books, he, he was an intellectual, and he was defending liberalism very strongly. So he allied with the Brazilian also, and of course the, the invasion of Uruguay was successful. The Brazilian, the, the post, the the government, they had signed the agreement with Paraguay, and as a result of all these changes, the the new Uruguayan government declared the war also against Paraguay. So at the end, we find ourselves with three enemies when we thought that we were fighting only one. We thought we were fighting only only Brazil, but at the end we have all these countries against us, and and that was the 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 end of the of the. Of the regime, of course, not only the Paraguayans were killed, but uh, this uh, uh, this kind of ancien regime, ter- uh, patrimonialist regime, was completely destroyed, and a new liberal government started in Paraguay. You know, a liberal kind of government, of course, not a perfect liberal government, of course, it started to 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 govern in Paraguay. So. I don't know if you are confusing things for for you, but uh, this was how the the war started. And uh, of course, militarily speaking, uh, Paraguay has a very disciplined army at that time. Uh, this government that we have uh, during the the half the first half of the 19th century uh, were investing in the army. They were buying at that armies that were modern for the time and uh, preparing the the army training the soldiers you know we have for for a small country like paraguay we have a quite an an important army really uh, for the for the for the for that time and actually when the war started countries like brazil itself didn't have enough soldiers to invade paraguay so they they promote the engagement of uh, mercenary troops of course when you use the word mercenaries today there is a lot of connotations you know negative connotations of course because we don't accept mercenary or we try not to have merc- Mercenarism is condemned today but in the in the 19th century, it was absolutely normal, it was absolutely usual, so there wasn't nothing really uh, out of the of the sun, let's say, <laughs> nothing extraordinary. So they were bringing, uh, for especially people from the northern Europe, you know, uh, Germans, a lot of Germans went to fight in the war against Paraguay, and that's is one of the reasons why there are so many Germans in the south of Brazil, because the, the, the price they were offering, these, uh, these mercenaries, you fight for one year against Paraguay, and I will give you uh, like 100 hectares in Rio Grande do Sul, or in, in Paraná state, or in, in, let's say, Santa Catalina state, and those are where there are the largest concentration now of Germans. You know, not necessarily all of them fought against Paraguay, of course, but the initial group, you know, the the, the first immigrants uh, that came to the region were 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 mercenaries. They they were coming to fight against us, in a way. You know, and there were some Italian also, some Italian uh, mercenaries that that came to fight against us at the beginning of the war, you know, because Brazil didn't have enough troops ready to fight against Paraguay. So.
0: And in the five years when the three alliances were fighting against Paraguay, two-thirds of the Paraguayan population was either killed or died of famine or disappeared, fled elsewhere. Um, yeah. At the beginning state? of the
1: war, we have something like 40,000 soldiers, you know, in our army. Uh, I will say that maybe 90% of these were killed during the war or died of diseases, you know, and things like that. But the rest of the population suffer a lot because of the lack of food, lack of uh, medicine or less sanitary, sanitary uh as support or help so they really w- was terrible was terrible really yeah
0: and then how did that affect where paraguay is today as an emerging economy
1: Well, uh, of course, uh, our economy was completely destroyed, but uh, the only riches that we have after the war was our land. We have a lot of land. Population was very small. Let's say, as I said before, maybe we were something like 200,000 people in the whole territory, which is relatively large, you know. It's like a, a, a little smaller than... I think you are living in Sweden, so it's little smaller than sweden sweden is big uh, maybe 10 percent larger than paraguay and so it, it was a large territory very rich land really our our soil is one of the best soils in 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 south america and maybe in the world you know and it's a very rich soil
0: why are you guys growing soybeans then
1: well, now we are producing a lot of soybeans. We are, as a matter of fact, I think we are the largest exporter per capita, considering the size of the population, of soya in the world. We produce like 10 million tons of soya every year. But no, not only soya. We produce uh, sunflower. We produce uh, corn, wheat. You know, uh, different kind of cereals. You know, uh, rice. We produce a lot of rice also. And we export everything. We are also we have a lot of uh, meat. We produce a lot of meat. We are, I think, the sixth or seventh largest exporter of meat in the world. And the quality of the meat is excellent, also, by the way. And uh, so uh, these immigrants started to build again the country, with the help of also of the local population because. Most of these immigrants were uh, unmarried men, unmarried men they came to Paraguay, not all of them, of course, you know, for example, not in the case of my family my on my mother's side my my grand grandfather came to Paraguay already married with with his wife and and land was cheap, you know the government was giving the land just for almost for free, you know. It was your only for you to choose where to go and live, you know, and how many hectares or how big size of land you wanted to exploit, you know. It what depended a time. on you. The government were given, you know, the lands. Because population was so small that the land was abandoned, you know. All the territory was almost abandoned, you know. So, uh, this immigrant started to... To uh, And actually, we have like a, a small economic miracle, you know. By the end of the 18th century, beginning of the 19th century, uh, the quality of life in Paraguay was comparable to, uh, of course, for the middle and higher classes, of course, you know. Because uh, as always in, in Latin America, we have this terrible problem, which is the the fact that uh, they are very, very rich people and on the other side there is a very large group of very, very poor people. You know? So, uh, mostly the, the immigrant class, you know, the, these uh, new immigrants that came to Paraguay, they, they enriched themselves very rapidly. And, 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 and there, there was like a middle class that was growing and uh, in especially concentrated in, in Asuncion, in the capital. And, and you, you see, by the beginning of the century, we have all the technologies that you can find anywhere in the world, you know, apply to, to our lives in, in, in Paraguay. You could use the telephone, you could, could have electricity, you could have uh, electric trains, uh, electric trams, tramways, you know, going all, all around the city. Uh, so really, it, it, the the quality of life was comparable to to anywhere in, in the world at that time, you know. And so uh, there, there was a big transformation. Uh, we were very successful in re-, re recreating the country. Let's say, the country was reinvented, you know, between. A, Eight, 1875 let us say or 80 and 910 120 the war of course was a, a good occasion for us for for enrichment you know the europe in, being in war needed everything you know i was impressed that when i visited the Imperial war museum in london uh, many years ago uh, there was a, a section of the museum dedicated to the food that was given to the soldiers, the British soldiers in the trenches. And in the middle of this exposition, you know, there was a can and it's a product of Paraguay. <laughs> I was impressed. Our meat in can, canned meat, you know, was sent from Paraguay to feed the the, the British soldiers in, in in the trenches. You know, I didn't know about that, but I was impressed to see that uh, at that museum. You know? That's quite so, something. So, uh, w- was an occasion, you know, an occasion for, to sell a lot of good, all kind of goods. Everything that we m- was being produced in Paraguay was exported, and a similar thing happened in the Second World during the Second World War. Those wars. We we didn't participate in the war, of course. We didn't send soldiers, no, nothing like that. Uh, but we were uh, exporting everything we can we could produce, you know. So then there was a period also of of uh, well-being, you know, in a, in a in a, in a sense. Yeah.
0: Does the name Eduardo Galeano mean anything to you? Who? Eduardo Galeano
1: Eduardo Galeano yes the the Uruguayan writer you know the Las Venas Abiertas de América Latina you know the
0: yeah does Paraguay feature at all in that the open veins of Latin America
1: the open veins of Latin America it's a famous book that he wrote Mm. yes well it's the bible the the bible of the left you know in, in Latin America it's like the bible of the left you know they consider like I remember the uh, during uh, um, one of the conferences that took place in in in, in I think it was in Colombia in Cartagena, the president of Venezuela, uh, not Maduro. I am sorry, uh, uh, gave a, a copy of this book to, to Obama. To the, yeah. Uh, to obama yes yeah. i i don't think it was maduro no it was no, before I'll Maduro. Go. yes okay well the this this book was given to him well my personal chavez. impression of chavez exactly chavez chavez gave it to 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 obama mm. the, it's a small book i i read it i, I read the whole book yeah. You know it, it has maybe 200 pages and and it tells really, I, I don't think it's a scientific book, it's not a scientific book. you You can challenge almost everything that is being said <laughs> on the uh, in that book on the rational point of view, you know but uh, it it expressed a lot of feelings, let's say of of frustration, the frustration that we were uh, really... Having in our in our hearts, you know, in in Latin America, you know, be, because we we are convinced that we are uh, one of the richest uh, areas of the world. You know, one, uh, absolutely, we have everything there. You know, we have absolutely we have the people. You know, we have people that wants to work, that wants to do things. You know, and very active people. Our population is really. Uh, incredibly active and and I, I will consider that they are uh, creative people, you know, because they are so different. We come from different traditions, different cultures, and this is very enriching, really. You know, the problem is that we don't find the political equilibrium, you know, necessary to to profit all all these positive elements that, that we have and and translate them into a, a, a continuous and and rapid development you know we we cannot do that i don't know why you know it is so difficult for us you know so there is a big a lot of frustration of course there is a temptation to say well the guilty people it's not me you know it's not us the, the guilty people are the the imperialists you know the so to me personally, maybe I'm wrong. A lot of other people could, could say something different, but I think that uh, it's not a question of uh, putting all the guilt into into something that is outside Latin America. The the big problem is inside Latin America. The big problem is that we have to find our way our own way and 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 solve our own problems you know by ourselves and, and this is what uh, we we couldn't for for many many years you know uh, of course they they are progressing but not as rapidly as we 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 want and and this book that was written in the 50s i think uh, of course uh, show us uh, really how how strong the frustration was you know at that time especially at this time among our intellectuals in in Latin America you know they were all frustrated because we were on on a on one side so rich in resources in all kinds of resources human resources natural resources you know but on the other side, we were not able to to be up to our destiny. Know, our destiny is to be one of the most evolved societies probably in the world. but that's what we think. We, we believe that that is our destiny. We should be like that you know but we, we cannot get there <laughs> you know uh, And I'm tired of, of listening to people saying you know uh, you are the countries of the future, the countries of the future. What means being a country of the future? You know, we we never get uh, reach that future. That's the problem. <laughs> so we are not. We we have a present. We have to live our present, not not the and and try to construct a future out of this present. Yeah. You know?
0: The the only reason I brought him up was just to ask whether Paraguay featured at all as um, one of these countries that had enormous natural resource wealth that was extracted, um, but. Kind of maybe seems not. It was more Argentina and Bolivia, Colombia.
1: Yes, yes. Well, we we we, we are not a, a country of mines, you know, like Bolivia, Peru. <clears throat> uh, actually, the when the conquerors came, you know, were looking for the gold and the silver, and after long explorations. And a lot of sacrifices, they discovered that what they wanted was concentrated only in three or four countries, you know, and those were Bolivia, Peru, Mexico, mostly, some of some of uh, Ecuador and and Colombia also, you know, in the mountains they have some silver, gold, and things like that. Chile also part of Chile, but uh, in the case of Paraguay. Our soil is very rich. Our and also we have uh, a, an element that is essential in 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 our day life, which is water. We have a lot of water. Paraguay is a very rich country in water. We have two large rivers. We have a a rain a rainfall let's say a system that is very effective. For agriculture up to now because with this climate change we don't know where we are going to finish so uh, uh, this make uh, Paraguay also a, a rich country and actually we are one of the largest producers of electricity in the world we have two large electric dams one with Argentina we produce a lot of electricity, most of what we can use. Hydroelectricity. Sorry. Ah, hydro. Exactly, exactly. Hydroelectricity. Uh, two big dams, Itaipu, <coughs> that for many years was the largest dam in the world. It's still the largest producer of electricity in the world. More than the three gorges in China in in quantity of electricity produced every year. Even if the, it's not that big as the three gorge system you know in, in 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 China. And then we have another one with with Argentina, Jasureta, which is also a large hydro hydroelectric dam. <coughs> and we produce uh, like ten times what we need. Electricity is, uh, what we need. So we are uh, selling this electricity to our neighbors, and that's also a good revenue for Paraguay. It's a very important revenue that we are receiving from these hydroelectric dams. Um, uh, so Paraguay is now is, is really is one of the countries slowly, slowly. We we are we don't have a, a miracle boom, you know. We we don't have a boom, but Paraguay has been growing steadily like uh, 3 4% uh during the last 20 30 years you know and that also helped some redistribution of riches in the country and poverty is been decreasing uh slowly unfortunately slowly we we still have something like 25% of our population under the poverty line, and maybe close to 10% of our population in the extreme poverty. Of course, this is unacceptable, you know, considering the the, the potentiality of the country. You know. But there are problems also of education, mostly, you know, because in the modern economy, it's not a question of being willing to work. You have to know what to do, and in order to know what to do, you have to go to school. You have to go to a technical school or whatever. You have to to educate yourself, and, and this is a, a big problem for us. You know, the the big challenge for Paraguay. We have a a large proportion of young people, so we have to educate the people uh, in order to to produce more. You know, this is also a Uh, it it is a restriction to investment also you know i remember uh, speaking of taiwan you know when i visit taiwan they they took me to a big factory where they were preparing electronic uh, products you know like uh, like telephones you know and handy telephones and things like that and uh, I, I told them why you don't bring uh, because they they told me uh, we are going to open a, a, a factory a new factory in Brazil and I say why in Brazil why don't you come to Paraguay and, and they say oh no the problem in Paraguay is that there are not enough uh, uh, workers uh, prepared for this kind of jobs you know uh, we will have to if we open a factory in Paraguay we will have to import the manpower you know. So that's the problem for a lot of con- developing countries. You know that even if you have the, a lot of resources, a lot of possibilities, uh, if your manpower is not uh, adequately educated, you know the investment cannot uh, go there. You know, it has to go to another country that is an, in a better position. So we are competing one country to another. Uh, on that also, you know, on the the level of preparation of your manpower, you know, in order to to attract really attract this invest, investment, we are doing also on that. We are investing now in in, in this uh, technical education, for example, vocational vocational we call it uh, education, uh, in order to to prepare people for for this. New industries, new new activities, you know.
0: <laughs> I get the sense that Paraguay would be full of ranches, like really beautiful horse farms. Well, not horse farms, but beautiful giant properties that are managing either cattle or yeah various monocultures. It'd be exceptionally beautiful to go to. Is it safe in Paraguay?
1: <laughs> well... That is nice for a a Western movie, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's what but, I'm thinking. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but you you cannot feed a population just with ranches, you know. Uh, you 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 see, uh, ranches are not intensive uh, manpower businesses. Uh, you can uh, let's say uh, manage a, a ranch with very few people. Uh, uh, you, I don't know if you have the experience to go to, to one of these uh, estancias, we call them, you know, The ranches in, in South America are called estancias, especially in the, in the southern part. You know? And if you go there, you will see that maybe there is a bunch of people, like uh, maybe 10 people, 15 people, managing a, a ranch of the size of a small capital city in Europe, you know. Uh, there are people that have like 100,000 hectares, 50,000, uh, 20,000 hectares, you know. And 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 they have like 3, 4, 5,000 uh, animals living on on, on those ranches. And, and only 10, 15 people will manage the whole thing. They, it's not, really, it's not Creating jobs for the, for the people, even no, if if is a good source of income for the country, you know, in, in the sense that you you sell the meat, you ex- export the meat, and you you get uh, some very convenient you know device the the uh, money you know income in 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 dollars or whatever strong strong money you know comes to your country. But uh, you have to have also a good uh, tax system in order to redistribute the riches that are going to a a group of people to the whole nation. The problem is that when you have the majority of uh, your population is poor, or is in, or if even if there are middle class. They are lower middle class. In, in the case of Paraguay, we have a large middle class, but maybe 60% of this middle class is really, really in, in the limit with poverty. If there is an c- economic crisis in, in, the, in the country, a lot of people will move to poverty. That happened also in Argentina, massively. You know? People that were living as middle class, suddenly, because of the economic crisis, they all go you know to to be poor to to be in the poverty area of the society again you know so the, this is a, a a big problem for us so in that case you cannot impose high tax uh, to to these people and you cannot direct all the taxation to to a bunch of people you know i know the it's very difficult sometimes when you are in a in a country like like Sweden or Germany or France to understand this, you know, how can you uh, let these people live like that, you know, like, like rich, extra rich, when uh, there is so many poor people. But you cannot tax uh, obsessively on, on a group of, of people because they, they, they will uh, flee the country escape the country you know that happening massively in in Argentina uh, in Uruguay also during the the what they call the dirty war there that happened in Brazil I remember when I was in New York the, there was a section of the city of New York in Manhattan they called the Argentinian uh, quartier the the area of the because there were a thousands thousand of Argentinian moving uh, relatively rich people—they were selling everything in Argentina and moving to to live in that part of of Manhattan, buying apartments or just building new 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 apartment houses uh, in that area, especially in the western part of of, of New York, you know. And, and that was because the there were some governments in Argentina or in, in 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 our part of the world they were trying to to make a, a change of the imposition system you know in, imposing them with uh, heavy taxation and things like that so it is a very delicate equilibrium you know the, for a government in, in in a emerging country especially what I know better is Latin America. Of course, I don't know what happened in Africa or in in Asia. You know, uh, I, I imagine it could be similar, but it is is a, is a, a, a difficult choice. You know, you have to give to this uh, richer section of the population some assurances for them to keep investing in the country and not to send all the money out. You know. Unless you restrict the movement of capital and you see what happened in Argentina when they try to restrict that, you know, Uh, it's incredible. All the financial system of the country becomes uh, so complex, so chaotic, you know, that you have rates of inflation that go to the sky, you know. So, uh, something like that could, could happen, you know.
0: Forget the rational economic development side of things, cultural side of things, just from your gut. You know, what makes Paraguay special?
1: Well, uh, I think Paraguay is a case of an emerging country where we never lost our identity. Uh, Paraguay is a country that is very proud of what what it is what it is Mm. Uh, we are proud of our traditions you know the these traditions come on one side from the native population living there and we we maintain that you know in our music in our gastronomy we have elements that were inherited or taken from our uh, native tradition autochthonous tradition and on the other side this there is this european influx the, and the european came with their ideas with their also the, with their gastronomy with the culture their music and everything so paraguay is a a, a country of encounter you know in paraguay the two elements have encounter each other and i we are very proud of that, really, we, we Paraguayans. And that make us also, give us a stability. Even if you don't live in, in Paraguay, like the experience I had with the Paraguayans living in Spain, they are very proud to be Paraguayan, even if they are so far from Paraguay. Mm. They know, they criticize the country. They know that we have a lot of... Uh, let's say weak weakness and we, we made a lot of mistakes and things like that but still they, 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 they love the country uh, so I think that in that sense uh, we are in, in, uh, in a, a good example maybe, maybe there are other countries too in, in Latin America but we are one of the countries that, that, that show the we can be different but at the same time uh, live in in we have hope that we can live better and and do something without destroying what are our I- I- identity elements you know? what mm. I- identify mm. us from all the others you know so we we are very attached to that and the fact that there there are new generation younger people or whatever doesn't change that even the younger generation they they are very very proud of of being paraguayans and 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 this is something that really uh, i think is important uh, and can be a let's say an element a positive element that we can offer to the world to the whole world
0: amazing well, thank you very much, Oscar.
1: Thank you, Ryan. Uh, of course, I, I'm I'm ready to to have another conversation whenever you want. I'm sorry that I, I, maybe I I didn't control myself and I I spoke too much on on certain issues, but. Uh, I think i i I thank you because you you made me do it <laughs> in a way you know you provoke me to do it you know no so you um, are half half guilty you are half guilty
0: <laughs> sure, I'll take guilt for it um but no, I think it stands alone as a really um good episode about Paraguay, but I think next time I talk to you, I want it to be in person, and uh, I want it to be more about you and some of your thoughts and opinions on. Uh, I suppose how the world is okay. uh, spinning no and diplomacy.
1: Yeah, why not? Yeah. Uh, well, we we are not too far away. I think uh, in Hamburg, uh, you are in 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 Stockholm or where in, in yeah, Sweden? Yeah, exactly. So it's not too far away. We we can meet we can meet here in in Hamburg whenever you want. Uh, okay. I will be back in Hamburg in, in March next year.
0: I take you up on it.
1: Yeah, why not? Yeah. Uh, well, we we are not too far away, I think. Uh, in Hamburg, uh, you are in 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 Stockholm or where in, in yeah, Sweden? Yeah, exactly. So it's not too far away. We we can meet. We can meet here in in Hamburg whenever you want. Uh, okay. I will be back in Hamburg in, in March next year.
0: I take you up on it.